You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com show and the number to call is 212-631-7553. So I'm Lynn Macron Mara and the name of the show is Better Days, A Positive Approach to Life. Tonight I have the honor of a guest named Rochelle Forrest, Forrester and she is a certified financial advisor and we are going to be talking about how we think about and address money issues um, in all stages of our life. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you so much, Lynn. So we began a conversation about thinking about money from different angles, and, and we thought the most organized way was to think about it in terms of stages of life. And... We were thinking from the beginning, like when somebody is brand new at um, starting out and starting out in their work life, and then moving on into middle age, and then on to uh, being a senior, and even into retirement. But that's not the only place we, you know, we don't have to go in that particular chronology. But you know, I thought that we could, you know, begin that as our jump-off point. Okay. So when you're young and you're just starting out and you're really looking at how you can start to prepare your finances, you know, there's a few things you should really think about. Um, Firstly, you need to have a bank account, maybe a checking account and a savings account so that you don't keep all your money in your checking account. You probably should set a budget. 
so you know how much you're spending every month, and then you can figure out what you can save. You should set up an emergency fund so that if something happens, and you can put that in savings, and that money really should just stay in cash because it's really there in case something happens, in case your car breaks down, or in case you have a repair you need or a doctor's bill. That way you have extra money, really, that you, you don't have to um, worry that you can't pay for those things that come up, and they do from time to time. You should look at the benefits that you have, either through work um, or if you're, you know, a young, somebody young that's getting married that your spouse may have or if you're on your parents' benefits. Um, you should look at what benefits you have and try and figure out what you have and what you need. Well, let's talk about what kind of benefits might somebody be paying attention to. Like you're talking about an IRA or a tax-deferred So annuities. benefits, I would say the first thing that you look at is really what health benefits you have, particularly with sure. the new um, ACA, which basically requires that you have health insurance. And up until 26, you can stay on your parents' plan if, if that plan allows it. And after that, you pretty much have to get your own benefits, either through your workplace or buy them, uh, buy them in the marketplace. You know, you probably you want to look at your retirement. Another benefit on the platform, as you mentioned, is a retirement account. And if you work for a company, you might have a 401K, you might have a 403B. And if you don't have those because your employer doesn't offer them, you might want to set up an IRA account. An IRA is an individual retirement plan. For exactly. Your, right. Which <clears throat> any individual, as long as they have earned income, they can set up. And the IRS allows anyone under 50 to contribute, uh, at least for 2016, can contribute up to $5,500 in this calendar year. Okay, so it is interesting. Someone who is just entering the workforce, someone who has just come out of college, they're 2021, 20, well, maybe 21, 22. How do you introduce the concept of thinking about retirement because it feels like miles away and it's hard for most people to think about something that may be 45 years ahead of them? and to impress that it's important to keep that as a target or as something to have close by rather than just thinking about it as far away? So I always tell my clients, my young clients, that really you need to have short and long-term goals. Mm -hmm. And on the long-term goal, I would say that retirement, although it seems far away, will come about, and that's if they start saving a little bit now and they continue just putting and squirreling away a little bit at a time, that they will be prepared when they are in their later years. And the statistic in the industry is pretty much that if a 20-something-year-old puts away $5,000 a year for the next 35 years, so that the, by the time they're 65, so that would be a mid-20s person, mm -hmm. they will have a million dollars in their retirement account, assuming that they earn a 6% rate of return. Okay. Well, that's pretty impressive. But $5,000 for someone who's making $30,000 a year and wants to live independently would, um, or 35000 or even 40000 
that would be probably a big stretch unless they want to always, you know, be living in their parents' house for the next five years. So what I would tell them is to put $50 of payroll away. Uh-huh. And when you get a raise, put another 10 or 20 or $30. And as their salary grows, mm-hmm. continue to put what they could afford away. I would tell a young person, though, that they really need to make sure that they have that emergency fund. Okay. So if it's a question between retirement dollars or having it by starting an emergency fund, Mm-hmm. Really, they should start just getting some money into that savings account to have for, you know, on the side just in case. The and then in- maybe when they get a raise, they take, you know, that's another small bit of money, maybe $25 or $50 of payroll and start putting that into retirement. If someone works for a company mm-hmm. and the company actually matches their retirement. Right. That's so huge. If there is a match. I say that they should really try hard to put money in to meet that matching amount because if an employer matches those dollars, that's a hundred percent return on the money because they didn't really contribute that. So an example, let's say that the employer has a three percent match, up to three percent for any money that the employee contributes to the retirement plan. If the employee can contribute 3%, the employer will match 3%. Okay. So really, they're getting 6% contributed to their retirement account, even though they're only putting in 3 Well, that's obviously a, a no-brainer if, <laughs> to put in the 3% yourself. And usually, in those situations, they take it out prior to taxes, right? Well, it really depends. So there's three choices. You, you can put something in pre-tax or you can put it in a Roth into an employer plan, assuming that the plan allows a Roth feature. Mm-hmm. About 50% of 401ks in America today have a Roth feature because it's a newer feature of, of uh, retirement plans. So many companies needed to add that to make it available. You, so if both features are available then you can contribute pre-tax money or you can contribute Roth or after-tax money. But it really depends on the individual plan. Okay. So those are important um, considerations for somebody who is just starting out. And I can imagine, well, I, I know young people who just have had essentially a, a BA or a BS or even a master's degree and yet have no financial education or very, very limited financial education about these different aspects of and ways of building their empire. Well, unfortunately, Lynn, you know, we don't have financial education in school. And, you know, when people get out of high school or college, they really don't know what to do. I mean, as, as a, I guess just from being on the program, if anyone wanted to give me a call or email me, I'll just, I'm going to give my contact information. So it's Rochelle Foster, Rich Planning Group, and my office phone number is 732-326-4907. And my email is Rochelle, R-O-C-H-E-L-L-E, at 
richplanninggroup.com. And by the way, the name of my company is really related to the initials of my uh, founding colleagues. It's not that you have to be rich to talk to a financial advisor. It just happened to work out that way. (laughs) It just happened to work out that way, exactly. Rochelle, we're going to take a moment music break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Lynn McRamara on City World Radio. The show is Better Better Days, A Positive Approach to Life. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Rochelle Forrester, who is a certified financial advisor. And we are talking about how to manage our money, how to, to look at money in all stages of our life. And so welcome back, Rochelle. So we are, yeah, hear it? And so welcome back. And you were giving, had just given the uh, contact information. So maybe you want to do that again. Four nine zero seven, and my email is Rochelle R O C H E L L E at richplanninggroup dot com. Fantastic. Okay, so we were talking about some of the, the multiple options that are available and should take be taken into consideration when somebody is taking a new job or um, when they're considering different um, ways of 
allocating their funds. And so uh, just to review a little bit, we were talking about addressing the issues of benefits. Um, you were uh, saying that you thought that the health benefits were a primary, and, and, and that is essential. And why are you putting that in the forefront um, almost before even emergency funds? You're talking about health health care? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're required um, to have health care, and you sign off on your tax return that you have health care. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can pay a penalty. So, right. And plus, if you, you know, you, 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 sh you need to have coverage just to protect yourself. So basically, I mean, health care is usually one of the first benefits um, that people are looking at. Um, you know, more importantly, I guess, in dental or vision, um, just to protect you if you had to go to the doctor or, you know, you had an emergency and ended up in the, in the hospital. So the so. benefits, um, the health benefits actually in terms of financial is a huge piece of, it's really, in, basically it is an insurance policy and it's to prevent you from having to, uh, it can put a lot of people in debt if they're not covered and they don't have a, a way of paying for medical um, problems, issues um, that they might have unexpectedly. So the, the health benefits can really rack up a lot of debt. And so one of the reasons why I think you're saying to address the health benefits is to be protective of the overall income. Yeah, I guess that's a good summary. Um, you know, you were talking about, as speaking of other benefits, as you get older, so maybe you're in your 30s or 40s and you're starting a family or you have a family, you know, some of the other benefits that are really important to think about are, for example, life insurance. Mm. So if something happens to you, how will your family pay their bills? How will the children go to college? How will the, you know, the house, if you have a house, get paid for? So oftentimes people buy life insurance in order to protect their loved ones in case they're not here. Right. In addition, one other critical one, which is, is probably less... Um, Equally as important, but not as, I guess, prominent, mm -hmm. at least when I see my clients, is, is disability. Mm -hmm. So the number is one out of four people in their, 20, in their 20s today will be disabled before they leave the workforce. It's a very high number. That's 25%. Is that changed? That seems enormous. No, it's, I don't know if it's changed, but that's the statistic. Mm. So what that means is, when, so what happens if you can't work? You know, you, you're still here, you're, you know, home, and you cannot work. Well, some people yeah, can qualify. If you have a very serious disability, you can qualify for Social Security disability. But the number of people that actually qualify, it, you really have to have a serious disability. And it takes about sometimes up to two years until you get the benefit. So one of the things, that, you know, I always tell my clients is, is to look at is disability insurance to protect their income. Because if they can't work, how will they pay their bills? It's right. not like the mortgage doesn't have to get paid or the rent or the electricity. You still have to eat. Right. And you have your... So, right. And so, again, it's a, a protection against emergencies. It's a protection 
to make sure that you don't rack up credit card bills in order to pay for food and that you just protect yourself in case that you're really protecting your income. Right. And sometimes you can buy it through your employer if you work for a company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't offer it. So it's always good to to look if that's an option. Um, But you can buy it privately in the marketplace also. Uh, And the younger you are and the healthier you are, of course, the 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 less it costs. The cheaper Um, it is, right. You cannot get disability insurance if you're not working because, again, it's to protect your income. If you lose your job, you have no income. Correct. So that is another um, area to check off in terms of protection. Now, as uh, one gets older, so that someone in their maybe 40s, early 50s, um, I don't know where you are on long-term insurance, but that has been a godsend for many families uh, going forward with uh, long-term illness and needing home care. One one partner might be working and the other partner um, is unable to work, unable to even take care of themselves. Um, so having long-term insurance covers the expenses that their care requires. So long-term care insurance is actually, I, I always talk to my older clients, and usually probably 50 and older. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes if they're in their 40s, we'll talk about it. Um, but usually the, you know, the age where people are really looking at purchasing a policy to cover long-term care is probably in their 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, they've seen the effects, as you said, of maybe their parents um, running out of money. Um, you know, the statistics here are daunting as well. I mean, Fidelity says that healthcare is going to cost after 65 or after retirement, if, if it's 65, that's, you know, the retirement age, mm-hmm. that healthcare is going to cost 250000 for a married couple 65 and above, excluding long-term care. So I, long-term speechless. care, long-term, I mean, and I don't think we plan well enough for expenses of health care later in life. In fact, in my planning, we're actually adding, and I always added a pretty, you know, a nice number, I thought, but in really looking at the recent statistics as we live longer mm-hmm. and we need care, um, I always talk to my clients about looking at long-term care. And the number one, I guess, obstacle that I hear from everyone, clients just talking to people about it is, but it's too expensive. And I would say that I think you have to think about it just designing the plan around what you can afford. You don't have to buy 100% of care for the rest of your life. You're really trying to hedge a piece of it Mm -hmm. so that you don't go through all your savings and then your spouse may not have any money left. So that you don't go through all your savings and then at some point, you're like, what do I do? I have no money left. I don't have the numbers in my head about how much it actually costs for law. Oh, actually, I do. It's about $2,400 um, a year to buy long-term insurance if you buy it in your 50s, mid-50s. Uh, let's step back because the premiums have all gone up. Okay. so I'm, I think okay. I think that that is a low-ball number. Well, okay. depending on how much of a benefit you want. Mm-hmm. Okay, but. so imagine, let, let's do kind of play with the numbers. So somebody who, even if it's $5,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, 
But if you take that $5,000 offset against the fact that it costs about $210 a day for 24-hour care, so if you have full-time care, you're paying $72,000 a year opposed to $5,000 of long-term insurance. Right. So when you do those numbers, to me that makes a lot more sense that you would be protecting yourself with a $5,000 investment in, instead of um, taking $72,000 out of your um, investments, out of your uh, principal cash flow, or any from from your nest, from from all of your savings, from all of it. I mean, seventy two thousand dollars is a chunk of change. I think seventy two thousand dollars is lowballing it. No. But no, it's not. But it's two hundred. But I would agree. <laughs> but people don't want to spend the money. That, that's true. But a lot of times, people don't think about you know wanting to spend the money. Although. You know, I agree with you. I think I think that more people need to protect themselves because as we live longer, more and more people are ending up needing some kind of care. And the longer you live, at some point you will need, you know, you will need care. And most people want to stay in their homes. You know, exactly. 99% of the people do not want to run to a nursing home. And even if you do go to a nursing home, the nursing home uh, costs the same. I mean, unless you've devastated all your finances and your, I don't know the actual numbers, um, but you have to be pretty, uh, have very slim resources left to become well, Medicaid etiquette. Well, you have to spend on your assets if you're a married couple right. to $3,000, if you're single to $2,000 before you can go on Medicaid. Which That's one of the criteria. In New Jersey, there's also an income level number, which... I'm actually not going to quote because I don't remember the exact right. number, but it's under 30000 Right. And I think right. the spouse can continue to hold on to the home, and they can have 120000 So there, you know, it, it's amazing how quickly, if somebody needs care, how quickly your resources can, be, can dwindle. And it's a scary, it's, it's a scary thought. Really. Actually, my own mother is going, we're going through this with my own mother. It is a very scary, it, it's a scary, it's scary to see how much the cost of care is today and how fast the money can just fly out of the account. Exactly. Um, it, it's shocking. And it, it seems to me, um, well, I was fortunate to be able to buy long-term care um, at the time that my husband was employed um, before he had retired, and that has really uh, provided care for him that I would not have been able to do in the same way um, if that had not already been in place. So that's great. I'm glad for you. No, it's I, – I, I'm really – I feel like I should be selling long-term care because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, it's been such a godsend, you know, that I've been able to work while he's being taken care of. Um, and that's, it makes a huge difference in the quality of everyone's life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. You should be a poster, a poster woman well, for this. That's what I'm saying. I should be selling it. <laughs> like, because it is a big chunk of money, 5000 But, you know, when you weigh that against what it actually costs for the care for the year, it's pittant. 
It's, well, it doesn't have to be five thousand. I, I mean, I, I think twenty four hundred is that too number. low. I don't know that it has to be five. Right. But I think every, you know when you look at the numbers. The other thing is though that you need to buy it before or, you need it. Exactly. Because you mm-hmm. have to. You can't get insurance if you're sick. Right. It's a catch twenty two. So, yeah. People that wait too long and then they say, "Oh, I wish I would have gotten it," or. You know, I should have gotten at a younger age or I should have been healthier. You know, the thing is, you have to be healthy in order to get insurance. Right. So we are sending out the message that to at least put it in your radar to think about whether or not it makes sense for you uh, to, to get long-term care. We never, you know, the truth of it, we never really think about um that we're going to be sick or it's going to happen to us or it's going to happen to our loved one. We don't think about that. Everything, you know, we kind of ignore the realities of, of life, you know, that, that things do change and they change in ways that we can't always predict. But it's better to try and anticipate what might be coming down the pike than to have to deal with things in an emergency situation. Well, as a financial planner, my job, as I see it, is really to give people options and to make sure they're educated about what the things are that could happen. Whether mm-hmm. they take action, I can't always help. But the worst is when a client or someone will come to see me and they say, I wish I would have known about this. I would have done X, but no right. one told me. So your program around educating people around different ideas actually brings that message out and is a very important one. I think so, too. And I, I'm not sure where I got the notion of thinking about money uh, early on. I think we, really when you think about money and how it's spent and how it's allocated comes from our childhood. You know, what were your parents spenders or savers? Were they... Did they discuss the choices about what they're going to spend their money on? Are they going to spend on expensive vacations or are they going to spend on renovating the kitchen or are they going to put money in their kids' college fund? So it's it's constantly uh, trying to think about what our options and choices are. And people do bring their financial history with them into their relationships, into their futures, because what they learned at home, whether it was good or bad, Mm -hmm. they bring that with them emotionally into their relationship with money as they age. That's true. So if they don't educate themselves and they only have whatever they saw their parents do, which that's, I mean, and since there really is very little education around a lot of you know, using debt, using credit cards, you know, protections around the insurances, saving, how do you invest, um, you know, all of those things. You really don't learn that in school. You don't learn that in college. And you're sort of thrown out there, just left on your own to just figure out, well, how do I, how do I make it happen? And sometimes people are lucky. Yes. Sometimes they just take those bad behaviors that they may have had ingrained from when they're young and they bring those into their adult lives and those carry through. Well, I think parents can do things from very early on in, in terms of helping children with uh, setting uh, an allowance and setting monies aside. Oh, this is for uh, you're saving up for a game and this is what we're putting away for a rainy day. 
And maybe this is what we're putting away to give to charity. I mean, you can from early on and helping children to make positive choices from very early on. It's o- It can always be a discussion from very young when kids even start to count and, and how they um, do math. You, there are so many different ways to bring it in in an organic fashion. Doesn't have to wait till they're out of college, you know, till they're out of college. Actually, what I don't know if you find this, but children who are go off to college and have never managed money are introduced to the credit card right on the start, you know, right on the beginning of campus, and it goes haywire because handing a card just doesn't feel like money. Well, you know, Lynn, since 2008, I believe, or maybe it was a little before then, maybe it was 2006, uh, kids under 21 cannot have a credit card unless the credit card is in their parents' name or someone's name over 21. So before, college children would get all those cards. Right. And they, you know, they would rack up that debt and it was terrible because they were spending on everything because it didn't feel like, you know, spending. No, they just gave the not. card. Right, it's magic. But today their parents, they can't get a card without their parents being on it. So there's a lot more regulation around that just to protect those kids and so the parents have to be much more involved. After 21, what I always say is uh, pretty much the student, the child should get, or the young adult should get a card in their own in their own credit, and they should spend money. <laughs> they should on that card. They should put something every month, a hundred dollars. What's one purchase? Right. And pay the card down because it builds their credit score. Right. That's true. And so- a lot of young people today use the debit card, and they use that because they want to only spend what they have. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't build any credit. Mm. <laughs> and also, that money comes right out of their account. If there's ever an issue on a purchase, right. they have to go and claim and fight to get their own money back versus on a credit card. You can just dispute that temporarily while things are being worked out if there's a problem. So what I'm hearing you saying, to think about your credit rating and the way to do it is to actually get a card and spend spend on the card, but we also should add the other part of it that you need to pay it off at the end of the month. Well, I think the main point is that you shouldn't spend more than you make or than whatever your budget is for certain purchases because you really don't want to carry credit card debt, which ultimately has interest, very high interest. I mean, mm. some of these cards, 19% is like... Even more, 29 28. And then, but, and so paying off your card. So people say, I don't need a card because I don't want to have problems. But if you use your card, you know, thoughtfully and you do pay your balance off, you can build your score, your credit score, which later on will help you getting a mortgage, getting a car. Right. There's a huge difference. If you have a good credit score, you can save money on your car. Oh, I, my own daughter is a perfect example. She has a great credit score. Uh, and when we went to, she went to go buy a car, she got, um, like, I think it was zero or um, less than 1% uh, to to pay for the her interest, which I thought was fantastic. 
That is fantastic. So I was... Versus someone who ends up paying 6, 8, 10% because their credit score is... They don't have a credit score or because their credit is bad. Right. So you want to be constantly conscious of of how you're managing your funds and how you're managing... Especially, I think the biggest problem is, is credit card debt. I know people who get into trouble just because they just, well, I don't have it, I'm just going to put it on the credit card. And it becomes a unmanageable, cycling, um, depressing um, situation where they absolutely can't dig themselves out of a hole. So what would you say to somebody who has, you know, accidentally on purpose got themselves into credit card debt? Well, I would tell them that they need to look at their budget and help them to work out a schedule on how they're going to pay down the debt. So if you only pay the minimum interest, you're not going to be able to pay that credit card debt off because it's just going to continue to grow, unfortunately. I mean, that's just the way the numbers work. So you have to look at paying off, let's say, the credit card debt with the highest interest first. You might want to consolidate some of it. Mm -hmm. And there are programs for that, but some of them seem uh, not as reliable as others or that they, it it didn't seem like they were legit in a way. Uh, I think that depending on how much debt you have, Mm -hmm. I would try to work with the client to figure out how do I pay it back in a reasonable time frame, looking at the budget, so... I have a client that had a lot of credit card debt, and they were also, for example, let's just use an example because that helps all the Yes, time. it does. Someone, you know, they were having like Starbucks coffee like, I don't know, twice a day, every day. That's oh. 10 times. So if it's $4 a day, that's $8 for two cups of coffee, you know, times five, five that's 40 bucks a week. So, so we have 80, you really need to do that. $160 a month. Just Exactly. So my... What I said was, look, I'm a practical planner. <laughs> it's sort of like if you go on a diet and you take away everything. It does, it, it's not sustainable. So I'm like, have two coffees a week. Have three coffees a week. Right. And the remainder of that money, there's an extra 100 bucks mm-hmm. paid on your credit card debt. And if you go through your own expenditures, there's always places to cut. And every client can cut separately somewhere differently mm-hmm. because one person may want to do one thing versus another. Mm-hmm. But if you really sit down and, and itemize your budget, really look through that carefully, you can usually find a way uh, to pay it back. Now, if you're living above your means, and so you're constantly adding new credit card debt, then you really have to sit back and say, what do I need to change in my life? Because, you know, more money out than you're making means that you, you can't sustain that over the long term. Right. So that's where we try to figure out the role that money has played in a person's life. Exactly. The other thing is student loan. I mean, student Mm. debt is rising at an exponential rate. Right. College costs are out of control. I don't see how they can continue because it's just not going to be affordable for families to send their children to college at the rate that that college costs are growing. And to saddle these young people with a huge amount of debt when they come out of school is also, some of these these kids come out and they have like a mortgage amount of debt. 
yes. ready before they even started working. Right, like they can have, you know, $250,000 or... It's huge, and it's very debil- mentally, emotionally, it's very debilitating. It is, and, and so, so you, I, I don't know how we address that other than try to figure out a way to have students meet their college needs in some other way. I don't know. I mean, perhaps, even even if parents would diligently from the day that a child is born and all the grandparents and every gift from every holiday goes into the college fund, it's still probably... Uh, is a daunting amount of of money. It's a huge amount. And I don't know, I think America, the whole system needs to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to change the system. Well, let's try. What what should we do? (laughs) Well, you know, you just have to think about, you know, what do I want to study? So I think that in 2008, people really stepped back Mm -hmm. and you started thinking about funding college, at least from a parent's perspective, differently, because here everyone thought, go to the best college, private, you have to spend the money. Mm -hmm. And then you had these college graduates coming out. You had law students, law, you know, grad students of law school coming out, and there weren't jobs, and they were waitressing and bartending, and here you spent all this money to go to school, and you couldn't get a job. Right. The PhDs so I think our system works differently than other countries where you go to school and you need to know what you want to study. Right. You have a... And you focus on that degree. and then you go into that profession. Now, maybe that's not the profession you went, you know, you, you do that for a while and then you want to make a change. That's fine. But in this, in, in our country, we go to school, we study for four years, the kids come out and they have no idea what they want to do. And so they're not prepared for a job. So for I a specific job. For a specific career. Right. And that is a, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know how to rectify that, but it is, you're right, there is such a different notion in other countries that their students are on a track to a particular degree, and so there's a lot of focus and attention And they can that. choose that. They can choose right. that course of study. Sure. But they follow that, you know, along the path. And so the liberal arts college, where some of the kids are just spending, you know, a lot of time doing basics, should we be doing that earlier on in high school? Should we be, you know, should that be where our focus is? Again, that's a whole change, you know, a sea mm-hmm. change. Right. But I even know with my own child, my first child went and studied, you know, a more diverse area of study, she did go to a top school, and she ended up being very motivated, and she got a job. Mm-hmm. But my with my next child, it was, re- when he started school, it was really thinking about, okay, now kids aren't getting jobs. You need to focus more on what you want to study and really prepare along that route, because you need to be able to get a job when you get out of school. And so he had a different course, and there was a whole different thinking around that, and I think... I think that today that kids need to do that more because it's just harder to get a job in today's market. And I guess it's sort of a cultural focus. I, I don't. I guess in, or an educational how to think about um, careers and lifestyle. And I, I think sometimes a twenty-year-old or eighteen-year-old doesn't have a vision of where they want to go. And so many start college with, well, 
I'm going to take a, a throw my net pretty wide, and then I'm going to narrow in. Um, and so I guess you know sometimes someone knows from the age of ten I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to be uh, a lawyer or or some dentist or whatever. They have a kind of a vision or a vet or you know they're going to be in nuclear science, but not everyone does, and and. I don't know. It, it's because we have this sort of open sense that everything is available. I'm not sure. I haven't gotten that far <laughs> as to uh, how to redirect people or even sometimes channel people. Or cha- well, I think that's definitely a challenge. And I think also parents are going into huge amounts of debt. If you look at the private mm-hmm. loans that the parents are taking out, firstly, right. the interest rate is a lot higher. Absolutely. And the one thing that is not forgivable, you know, like in, in a lot of things, if you if you file for certain relief, or you, you know, a lot, like some chapter. debts or you mm-hmm. consolidate, you can get relief. Student debt must be repaid. Wow. There is no relief under any, you know, statutes which allow student debt not to be repaid. No, but there are programs when people are working in um, f- loan forgiveness when they're, depending on your field, sometimes if you uh, work in a particular area, I'm thinking of mental health, um, if you're working in a nonprofit situation, that they do recalibrate the amount. If you work 10 years in the field, they recalculate your debt over that time, and they okay. reduce Also, it. if you're a teacher and you're working in an underprivileged right. community and you work for 10 years and you are 10 years in that underprivileged community or in one that's designated, it doesn't have to always be the same one, then you're right. Then your student loans can be forgiven. I will tell you, though, that I have, um, I actually handle um, some retirement plans for um schools in those underprivileged communities, mm-hmm. and when the teachers leave those and go to a school during their career, and there's a lot of turnover in the teacher market, for sure. Um, unless you're tenured or whatever, but if you leave and go to a private school or a school that is in a, you know, not in one of those challenged communities, your debt actually has to get paid. I'm actually dealing with that right now with, with, some, with some of the educators who realize that, oh dear. Yes, now I have I to didn't take... spend my 10 years. I'm going to have to spend this enormous amount. And many of them also have master's degrees because in order right. to teach you, do you need a master's? So For sure. they're now faced with, oh, my goodness, I have to pay this back. What am I going to do? Right. And so once you get into that program, you have to pretty... You have to be pretty sure that you're going to stick with it. At least you can move from one facility to... A situation to another, but it has to be with under the rubric of nonprofit or uh, underprivileged or something of that sort, so that you can take your forgiveness program with you, basically. So I don't know any of the statistics around how many educators or um, therapists actually manage to get their debt forgiven and spend 10 years in an underprivileged or in a community that's considered challenged. Um, I don't know if they track that or, I mean, I have never seen a statistic around that. Um, But it's available and not everybody really knows about it. I mean, for instance, um, my daughter's working at Rutgers and the program is part of the nonprofit component and she's in mental health. 
and she um, it's a ten year program, and she knows she's completely committed to working in that f- a situation, and she will have her loan paid off in seven years um, at a greatly reduced rate because she figured out how to um, become part of the program and get this paid off. Good for her. Yeah. I thought that was really, I mean, I hadn't heard about it. She had heard about it from a colleague and followed up and discovered that um, it was a tremendous reduction. And actually, because of it, she was able to buy a house because instead of paying for the student loan, she was able to pay a mortgage. Great. That's wonderful. It's Yeah. So it was a really, um, but I think it's important to also know that not everybody's committed to working in a nonprofit situation. You know, people often go to looking for very high paying jobs. They've worked a lot. They've put in their time for their undergraduate and graduate school. And then, you know, they, they want to bring in the bucks and that's fine. But it's, you know, there are many different ways to cut the pie, I guess, or, you know, uh, think about careers and, and what you want to do and what area you want to work in under any um, heading. So I was thinking about, um, so one area we really haven't talked about is what happens when somebody retires and they had uh, taken care of many of the pieces. They put money away in their IRA. They put money away. They, they're getting a pension. They get Social Security. But still, they're lively and, and want to continue to, to work or to live a certain lifestyle. How do you address retirees? So it's sort of the other end of the continuum. So I think that's really the next wave for the most part because so many baby boomers are retiring and now everyone is looking at how do I distribute my money, how do I make sure it lasts, what do I do. So if you have your finances in order and money is not an issue, that's always fun for a planner because (laughs) we can help people to say, okay, this is your money, this is your spending, you want to spend more or less, so this is how we can allocate your money to achieve certain goals. Um, I think the challenge also for people is, you know, it's not just about the money. Mm-hmm. It's also about what am I going to do productively with my time because you've spent so much, 80% of our working time, of our, of our day, daylight time, our waking time is really spent around working in our careers. That's and suddenly true, so. you wake up and, and if you, have, you don't have a plan. So it's not only about the money. It's mm-hmm. about where do you want to live? How do you want to spend your time? Are you going to volunteer? If you and your husband have gone out to work every day and suddenly you're home together all the time, <laughs> that might not be the best recipe for the most successful, you know, union. Golden years. <laughs> um, it may, but it may not. So I think people have to do two things. I think they need to focus on what are they going to spend their time on that gives them satisfaction, and then how do they make sure that the money that they have is you know, that they're that basically that they have enough each year that tax-wise it's used efficiently because, again, you're taking your money out. So you're taking it out of uh, ca- accounts that you have to pay income tax on or you're taking it out of accounts where you're going to pay capital gains tax or mm-hmm. ordinary income tax. Sure. 
Uh, you know, are you taking it from accounts where you've paid tax versus you haven't paid tax? Once you turn 70 and a half, the government requires you to take what we call RMVs, which are required minimum distribution, and it's set on a formula. Mm-hmm. So you have no chance to say that isn't the number I'm taking. If you don't do it, you have there's a penalty, so you have to make sure you pay that amount. And sometimes what we're finding is that number, which people didn't count on because maybe they have a pension and they have Social Security, is boosting their income, mm. and they're only they're in a different tax bracket. So that's a new challenge that people are facing. Right to to protect their so to make sure many, that they're not paying extra tax. Right versus you know what they thought because people say when you're retired you'll be in a lower tax bracket, but not necessarily. Well, that exactly, that may not necessarily be true, and you don't necessarily, and, and it affects your Medicare, because you see around Medicare, you if you make over a certain amount of money, you pay more. Right. So right now, if you have your Social Security, you pay about $105 for hospitalization and for, let's say, drugs. That's not with a Medigap policy. That's just under Medicare. Right. So that's, let's say it's about $208, a little more, $209 out of your monthly check. If you make over a certain amount of income, that can go all the way up to $400 per person a month. Right. It can be a huge differential. So what we say in the planning community is you need to start looking at that when you're age 63. Even though Medicare is 65, you go on Medicare when you're age 65. Right. Unless certain other circumstances, and you're still working, and there are exceptions. But for the most part, people do go on Medicare at age 65. At age 63, they need to be looking at what's my income going to be. Right. Because that's when the government is looking back to say their tax return to say, okay, what's the income? So how much will be deducted? Right. We have come to wrap-up time <laughs> on City World Radio, Better Days, A Positive Approach to Life. I have been talking to Rochelle Forrester, and she has been talking about all the different aspects. And, of course, we could go on for hours talking with her about the different ramifications of and different age groups and how we manage our finances how we think about it emotionally, financially, short and long-term planning. There's so many different attributes. Hopefully, maybe you'll come back and we'll talk some more. Okay, I'd love that. Thank you. Again, if anyone wants to actually reach out to me, it's Rochelle Foster at Rich Planning Group, 732-326-4907, Rochelle at richplanninggroup.com. Fantastic. That is Thanks, so Lynn, good. for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I loved having you. Thank you so much, Rochelle. It's really been a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye now. This is Better Days, a positive approach to life. Talk to you next week.
if you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a